to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. We will read the whole of the chapter. The text for this morning's sermon will be the well-known verses 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 1, this is the inspired and therefore infallible Word of our God. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometime who Ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace." and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. We end our scripture reading at that point. The text for this morning's sermon is verses 8 through 10. 
For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. In this passage of Scripture, we have one of the grandest statements concerning our salvation in the whole of God's Word. This is a passage many of us memorized when we were but small children. This is a passage that theologians committed to God's sovereign grace have appealed to thousands of times throughout the history of the church. This is one of the most important doctrinal statements in the whole of sacred writ. And what makes it so important is the clarity that it provides us concerning how we are saved. For you see, we have some profound truths stated in the simplest possible language here in this passage so that Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10 sets before us the ABCs of our salvation. And all of that underscores the importance of this passage and thus the value of considering this text in a sermon. This passage is valuable because of the doctrinal clarity that it provides us. And that's so crucially important because of the fact that false doctrine is ever sweeping through the church of Jesus Christ. Thus, it's good for us to go back to these foundational passages that we might be rooted and established in the truth of the Reformed faith. This passage is also important, though, for practical reasons. Because this passage is all about our salvation. And the reality is there's nothing more important in all the world than being saved by God's grace. And what is more when it comes to the Christian life and the living of the Christian life? Well, that flows out of thankfulness, out of gratitude for our salvation. So that it's when we have a clear understanding of God's grace in salvation that we will be led then with hearts of gratitude to live unto Him and to serve Him and to praise Him and to worship Him. This passage comes as a summary of the argument that the Apostle Paul has been making in verses 1 through 7. At the end of chapter 1, he talked about the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us. That power was revealed in the raising up of Jesus Christ from the dead. And now that same power is manifest in God's dealings with us and taking us and saving us. Specifically in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit, set forth the the depths from which we've been saved. And that we were dead in our 
trespasses and sins. We were children of disobedience, children of wrath. But by the power of His grace, He made us alive. That was verses 5 through 7 that He's quickened us together with Christ, raised us up together with Him, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And now, having explained all of that, the Apostle Paul comes to a sort of conclusion. He summarizes with these well-known words. We're saved by grace through faith without any of our works. And it's that summary statement that we want to focus on this morning. So the theme for this morning's sermon is very simply salvation by grace alone. (coughs) First, we'll look at that gracious salvation. Second, at the works that are excluded. And then third, the proper boasting. Salvation by grace alone. The gracious salvation, the works excluded, and the proper boasting. On the surface, it's very obvious that this passage is about our salvation. Verse 8 says, For by grace are ye saved. Saved. So what is it to be saved? And While there are many different ways that we could answer that question, perhaps one of the best ways is to draw from the context here in the first part of the book of Ephesians and see the different elements, the different aspects of our salvation that fall under the the broad umbrella of being saved. And when we do that, we see that our salvation includes our election. That's chapter 1, verse 4. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Our salvation includes the fact that we were predestinated in Christ Jesus. Includes our sanctification. That's the rest of verse 4. We were chosen that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Salvation includes our adoption. Verse, chapter 1, verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. That is, we're chosen to be the sons and daughters of the Most High. Salvation includes our redemption. That's chapter 1, verse 7. In whom we have redemption through His blood. That's really the, the heart and center of our salvation that Jesus Christ gave His life, had His bloodshed in order to redeem us from our sin. Salvation includes the forgiveness of sins. That's the rest of chapter 1, verse 7. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. All of our sins are washed away. They're removed from us as far as east is from the west. Salvation includes the fact that we are made heirs that we've been given an inheritance. Verse 11 of chapter 1, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. We have the right to eternal life, the right to the new heavens and the new earth. Salvation includes the gift of the Spirit. That's the end of verse 13. Ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. We've been given the Spirit of Christ to live and dwell in our hearts. Salvation includes new life. As we just mentioned in the introduction when the Apostle Paul explained that though we were dead in sin, we've been quickened, we've been made alive. 
each one of those things is a different aspect of our salvation. So that when we come to chapter 2, verse 8, and it talks about being saved, it's clear we're to understand salvation in the broadest terms possible. So that salvation is being delivered from the greatest imaginable evil and being blessed and given the greatest possible good. That's salvation. Now this passage is not so much about what is salvation. That's not the main point. Instead, the main point of this particular passage is how are we saved? What makes us a Christian? Do we save ourselves? Is is salvation on account of our own good works? Is it because at some time in our lives I made a decision for Jesus Christ? Or is salvation to be understood as a sort of cooperative effort? God does His part, man does his part, and when you put the two together, then you have salvation. That is, is salvation the product of some sort of synergism? The value of Ephesians 2, verses 8-10, through is that it provides us with one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture concerning how we are saved. What is it that makes us Christians? And the clear teaching of the passage is that God saves by grace through faith. God saves by grace through faith. And the rest of this first point is going to be unpacking that statement and the three parts of it. First, this passage of Scripture teaches us God saves. That's evident from the specific language in verse 8, for by grace are ye saved. It puts it in the passive, not by grace ye save yourselves, but ye are saved. And if we ask well, who's the subject? Who's the one doing the saving? Well, the clear testimony of the whole of God's Word is that salvation is of the Lord. This is His work we are talking about. That comes out also in verse 10, where we read, for we are His, God's workmanship. And the idea of that word workmanship is something that's been produced, something that's the product of a a skilled artisan, of a master craftsman, and it's teaching us, well, God is the master craftsman. He's the one at work in our hearts and lives, which is to say, God is the one who saves us. Now we need to be more specific because the teaching of Scripture is that God saves us in and through Jesus Christ. For you see, it's only on the basis of Christ's saving work that we have salvation. We're going to come to talk about the cause of our salvation. We're going to talk about the instrument of our salvation. But before we get to either of those things, we have to talk about the foundation, the ground, the basis of our salvation. And that's Christ. And His saving work, both His perfect satisfaction of God's justice at the cross and atoning for our sins, as well as His Perfect obedience to the whole of God's law, which serves as the basis for our righteousness. 
Christ is the one who earned our salvation. He accomplished our salvation. He merited our salvation. And that salvation comes to us only as those who are in Christ. That's the truth that's repeated again and again and again all throughout this book of Ephesians when Paul is constantly adding in Christ, in Him, in Jesus. He's pointing to the truth of our union with Jesus Christ. The fact that there's this living connection between us and Jesus Christ due to the work of the Spirit. And it's only as those who are in Christ that we become partakers of the salvation that He has earned. We have one example of that even in this very passage, verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And now when it speaks of being created in Christ Jesus, it's not talking about our physical creation, but our spiritual recreation. The fact that we who were dead have been made alive. The fact that we are new creatures in Jesus Christ who have the image of God restored to us, that knowledge, that righteousness, and that holiness that takes place in Christ. And all that underscores the point, God saves. It's not the work of man. It's a divine work. And God saves us by His grace. By grace, that's what we want to see Secondly, it's the teaching of the text. For by grace are ye saved. This is emphasized. He puts this first. God's grace is that spiritual power whereby He saves us. And now certainly that grace is rooted in His undeserved favor toward us. It's really the the basic idea of grace that we're most familiar with. His undeserved favor. It's what is being talked about In the book of Genesis, when we read that Noah found grace in God's eyes, that is, when he looked into the eyes of God, he he saw favor. He saw a favorable attitude. And that was wholly undeserved because what we deserve when we look up into the eyes of God is to see His wrath, to see His justice on account of our sinfulness. So for God to look upon us with an attitude of favor is altogether undeserved. And that's what we most often think of when we hear the term grace is undeserved favor. We have to recognize that that undeserved favor, that attitude, comes to expression in God's powerful, irresistible, and efficacious work to draw us to Himself, to deliver us from our sin and misery, and to give us all the blessings of salvation. And that's how we're to understand God's grace when it's mentioned here. The Apostle Paul is talking about the power whereby God saves us. And that's why he puts it in the language that he does, for by grace are ye saved. It's the power whereby we're saved. To put it differently, God's grace is the cause of our salvation. We said the basis, the ground, the foundation That's Christ-saving work. The cause, or to put it more specifically and to use a more technical term, the efficient cause of our salvation 
That's God's grace. So God's grace is the power that saves. It's the cause of our salvation. If we want to put it in still different terms, we could say God's grace is the explanation for every part of our salvation. So that if we ask, why is it God the Father chose us in eternity to be His adopted sons and daughters? The answer is grace. If we ask, why is it the Son came down into this world, took upon Himself our sin and guilt, suffered His entire life long and laid down His life at Calvary, the answer is God's grace. If we ask, why is it the Spirit of Christ comes and gives us new life and dwells within us and sanctifies us. The answer is God's grace. That's the explanation. And we can go still further. And we can ask the question, why is it at times we are sorry for our sins and seek forgiveness in the blood of Christ? Why is it we make a small beginning in a life of new obedience? The answer is God's grace. From the beginning to the end of our salvation and everything in between, it's all of God's grace. And that makes our salvation, therefore, both undeserved and unmerited undeserved in the sense of there's nothing in us that would lead God to save us. We did not make ourselves to differ in any way. Really, God's grace comes to us in spite of ourselves. It's undeserved. And it's unmerited. Salvation is not something we've earned. God is not paying us back. He's not compensating us for anything that we've done when He gives us the blessings of salvation. This is something the Apostle Paul clearly wants to emphasize. So much so that before he ever came to the conclusion, already back in verse 5, he interjected this truth. Do you notice that as we read? Verses 1 through 4, 1 through 3 rather, set before us the depths from which we've been saved. Verses 4 through 7 set before us the heights to which we're raised, and right in the middle of that explanation of us being quickened with Christ, raised together with Him, made to sit together in heavenly places, Paul interjects the truth of God's grace. Verse 5, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, and we'd expect Him to just go right to, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together. But instead he says, by grace ye are saved. It's as though he could not help himself. He couldn't keep it back. He's so eager to get to God's grace in the summary that he inserts it right in the middle of an argument. And if we ask, why? Why is this so important to the Apostle Paul? 
The answer is, what else could he say? What else could he say when he thought back on his former life and remembered himself as that blaspheming Saul of Tarsus who hated Christ, who hated the church, and went about breathing out threatenings and slaughterings, and now saw God's saving work in his life. What else could he say but to say it is by the grace of God that I am what I am? Paul viewed himself as exhibit A of the truth that salvation is by grace alone. And that's what this passage teaches us. It's grace, beloved, that is the power, that is the cause, that is the explanation for every part of our salvation. So God saves by grace. But now how do we receive that salvation? That's where the third part of the text comes in. He saves us through faith. Verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And this is teaching us that faith is the instrument, the means whereby we are saved, so that the basis is Christ's saving work. The cause is God's grace and the instrument, the means, that's faith. We're familiar with that. But we need to explain that a little bit more. When God saves us, that begins with the Spirit's work to unite us to Jesus Christ. We mentioned that truth a little bit ago, the fact that we are in Christ. There is now this living, vital connection between our Savior and us that the Spirit of Christ establishes. When the Spirit of Christ establishes that bond, that includes giving to us the gift of faith. That is, the Spirit gives us the faculty of faith. He plants within us the seed of faith. And when the life of Christ flows through that union to the child of God, his faith becomes active. And it's by faith, it's through faith that we now receive the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. So that when we speak of faith as the instrument or the means of salvation. What we're saying is it's by faith that we embrace Jesus Christ. It's by faith that we come to possess and enjoy all the blessings of salvation. It's by the means of faith, the instrument of faith, that we seize upon Christ and lay hold of Him and all the different aspects of salvation that He earned for us. That's what it means that faith is the instrument. We receive what God's grace in Christ gives by means of faith. 
So the clear teaching of this passage regarding how we are saved, what is it that makes us a Christian, is that God saves by grace through faith. And that means the whole of our salvation is a gift of God. That's the way to summarize this entire first point. And we say that in light of the language of the passage. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And now in coming to the last part of verse 8, that phrase, it is the gift of God, it's worth acknowledging that there is considerable debate, even amongst Orthodox theologians, about how to understand that phrase, it is the gift of God. And the debate hinges on that word, it. What is it referring to? Is it referring back to grace? Is it referring back to faith? Or is it referring to being saved? Now, very likely, most of us have always understood it as referring back to faith, so that we use Ephesians 2, verse 8 as a proof text for the truth that faith is a gift from God. If that's your understanding, you are in good company. There are some Orthodox theologians who would disagree and say, no, it's referring to grace, or no, it's referring to being saved. And the reason for the, the, difference, the differing opinions is that the original Greek is inconclusive. We're not going to take the time to have a lesson in Greek grammar this morning, but to suffice it to say that the Greek grammar itself does not tell us conclusively it's referring to this or to that. Rather, really, the the Greek grammar is puzzling. But it's for that very reason that I believe it's best to take the it in the broadest sense of referring to everything that has gone before it so that the teaching here, it is the gift of God, is teaching us grace is a gift. Being saved is a gift. And faith is likewise a gift. I believe we're to understand this in the broadest sense possible as referring to the whole of our salvation, every aspect of our salvation, including even the cause and the instrument of our salvation. It's all a gracious gift from God. And exactly because that's true, that means... All works are excluded. When it comes to answering that question, how are we saved? What is it that makes us a Christian? And that's what we want to see in the second point. Text reads, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And again, we're to understand this in the broadest, most general sense possible. We're not the ones who save ourselves. It's not because of anything that we do. Now, having stated that, there are two specifics that we need to look at this morning that are the first and second halves of this second point. First, it's not our good works 
that save us or make us a Christian. And that needs to be said because of the danger, the temptation for man to make his good works a part of the equation of what gets us saved, what makes us a Christian. This was the error in Paul's day already. When the Judaizers were teaching that in order to be saved, you must be circumcised. In order to be saved, you must keep those Old Testament ceremonial laws. They were bringing works into the equation of how we are saved. This is the same error we've seen all throughout church history, whether it was Pelagianism of old, the error of the Roman Catholic Church, the federal vision today, all of them involve inserting, injecting works into the answer of what makes us a Christian. And now to be sure, all of those groups that we just mentioned will speak of grace. They have a a lot to say about grace. But if you ask them to spell grace, the answer is invariably W O R K S. That is, if you ask them, what do you mean that we're saved by grace? Explain yourself a little bit. Their answer betrays that really they view works as part of how we are saved, what makes us a Christian. Over against all of those errors and many others, the teaching of Scripture is that we are saved by grace apart from our works. Our good works do not save us. And that means what makes us Christians is not that we come to church twice on a Sunday. What makes us a Christian is not that we read our Bibles and pray. What makes us Christians is not that we avoid some of the open vices and immorality that we see in the world around us. What makes us Christians is not that we are diligent in our jobs that we've been given. What makes us a Christian is not because of any sort of deed that we have performed. And if for some reason you have any doubts about that, I have a proposal for you. Go home after the worship service. Take out a piece of paper and a pen and start writing down all your good works. Write down anything and everything that you believe is pleasing to God. And now imagine taking that piece of paper and bringing it to God on Judgment Day and saying, this is why I belong in heaven. It would be laughable if it were not so serious. It's not our good works that save us. 
But now the question becomes, why not? We've noted the danger. We've stated the truth. It's not our good works, but why not? The reason why not is because God gets the credit for our good works. And that's where verse 10 comes in. Verses 8 and 9 are the most familiar to us, but verse 10 is a part of that. It's connected. It begins for. And it's saying, here's the reason. Here's a part of the explanation for why good works are not why we're saved or how we're saved. The reason is we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. It's saying God gets the credit for them. And therefore, they cannot be a part of what saves us. And that's true, even though the believing child of God does indeed perform good works. That's embedded in verse 10. Verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. This is the same truth that we're taught in Titus 2, verse 14, that we've been redeemed in order that we might be zealous of good works. For good works. That is, a part of God's purpose in saving us is that we would produce good works, that we would live a life of good works, that we would bear much fruit. And what is more, we can even see from this passage that the child of God willingly and actively walks in good works. That's a part of the language which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That is, God does not do the good work for us or on our behalf, but He works in us in such a way that the child of God is active, He's willing, He's conscious, even as He goes about living a life of good works. So we clearly perform good works by His grace. But why then can they not be what save us? Because as we stated, God gets the credit for them. He gets the credit for them because of His work in eternity. And that's what verse 10 is emphasizing when it says that we're created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That is already in eternity. God determined. He decided what good works we would perform, the specific works, not just in a vague and general sense, but down to the specifics. What is more, there's not only that work in eternity of ordaining ahead of time what good works we would walk in, but God is the one who works in us so that we live a life of good works. That's the teaching of Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, which teaches us that He works in us both the willing and the doing. That is, it's only because of His work in us that we then work out our salvation. And all that is to say, God gets the credit for them. To use the language of Belgic Confession, Article 24, we are beholden to God for our good works. And it's for that reason that our good works are not how we are saved. They are not what make us Christians. To teach otherwise is to take the teaching of Scripture and flip it around backwards. It's not 
our good works that make us Christians, but God makes us Christians so that we live a life of good works. It's not good works leading to salvation, but it's the work of salvation, God's work of salvation that leads to us performing good works. So the clear teaching of the passage is that our works do not save us. And it's crucially important that we maintain this as a congregation and as a denomination of churches. For there is a danger that on account of the errors the doctrinal errors of those who left us, that we overreact and become guilty of error ourselves. Due to the controversy, it has become necessary to affirm the child of God does willingly, consciously, actively perform good works. God does not perform them for Him or on His behalf. But though we've had to defend that truth, we must not become so entrenched in our defense that we begin to fall into the opposite ditch of overemphasizing good works, of overemphasizing the, the value of good works, so that we begin to lose the emphasis we've had all throughout the history of our denomination that it's God who saves us without any of our works that we're beholden to Him for them because He ordained them already in eternity. And He's the one who works in me the the willing and the doing so that when it comes to our good works, the desire to perform them, the will to perform them, the opportunity to do so and the actual performing of good works is all because of God's grace. And our denomination has always emphasized that. And so may God spare us from overreacting to other errors that we begin to lose that emphasis that God saves by grace, through faith. Now we need to make that clear, not only with respect to our good works, but now also secondly with regard to our faith. That is, faith itself is not what saves us. And again, We need to make that explicit over against the various errors that have been taught throughout the history of the church. When I was preparing this sermon, one commentator I read explained this verse this way, saying, quote, grace is God's part, faith ours, end quote. In other words, what that commentator was saying is, well, faith is our part of the deal. It's our part of salvation. I trust you recognize that's really the teaching of Arminianism. Arminianism says in the Old Testament, God required perfect obedience to the law in order to be saved. 
But because that was too hard, he dropped that requirement. Now the new requirement is faith. And God takes faith in the place of perfect obedience. So that faith is what saves us. This was also the error of those who left our denomination in 1953. Why does God continue His covenant with this child and not that child? Well, the one child fulfilled the condition of faith. So that faith was, so that our salvation and God continuing His covenant was made dependent on our faith. But over against those heirs, the teaching of Scripture is that faith itself is not the thing that saves us. In other words, what makes us Christians, the reason we are saved is not because at some point in the past we made a decision for Jesus Christ. That's how much of the church world speaks. I chose Christ. I accepted Christ into my heart on such and such a date. That's not how the Apostle Paul puts it. When he talks about his conversion, when he was traveling on the road to Damascus, he does not say, just before we got to Damascus, I let Jesus Christ into my heart. But he makes very clear, it was the work of God by His sovereign, powerful, irresistible, and efficacious grace that He drew Saul of Tarsus to Himself. So it's not my decision, it's not my choosing that gets me saved. Now to be clear, we are saved by faith. Scripture is clear, whosoever believeth shall not perish but have everlasting life. But that's different than saying faith itself is the thing that saves us. The, the proper way to put it is Christ Himself saves by means of or through faith. And that's not just proper from a theological point of view. That's biblical. Because when we scan the pages of Scripture, really, if we read our Bibles cover to cover, you will not find a passage that says we're saved on account of our faith or because of our faith or on the ground of our faith. But it's always by faith or through faith. Now again, there's a reason for this. We noted the danger. We stated it's not faith itself that saves us. And now the question becomes, why not? And here the answer is twofold. First, because faith itself is a gift from God. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. Even if that's not the point of Ephesians 2, verse 8, it is the gift of God. I believe faith's included there. But even if that was not the case, Scripture still clearly teaches us faith is a gift. That's Hebrews 12, verse 2, which tells us Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. Faith comes from Him. That's the teaching of Philippians 1, verse 29, which tells us we are given to believe so that we're not only given the faculty of faith, but even the activity of faith is something that comes from God by His grace. And because faith is a part of the overall package of salvation that the Spirit applies to us, 
faith is not the thing that saves us. Second, that's true because of the very character of faith. And the character of faith is that it is that it looks away from self and it looks to Christ. Faith is self-abandoning, not self-promoting. Faith is Christ-reliant, not self-reliant. Faith looks to Christ. It embraces Him. It trusts Him. And it believes in Him. And for that reason, faith is not the explanation for our salvation. It's the instrument whereby we receive salvation. And again, it's so crucial that we maintain this as a congregation and as a denomination. Because due to the recent controversy, there has been the need to defend the truth of the Canons of Dort, which says man himself is rightly said to believe. That is, it's been necessary to defend the the whole idea of the activity of faith and all of the active verbs that go along with it that faith believes, it knows, it trusts, it embraces, it appropriates, and the many others. But though that defense has been necessary, let's not become guilty of overreacting so that we so emphasize the activity of faith that we're left with the impression it's my faith that's that's doing this. It's my faith that's saving me rather than Christ saving me by faith or through faith. I must never walk away with the impression that my salvation is dependent on my faith, that faith is the condition I must fulfill. And we must avoid speaking of faith as a a doing, that which man must do in order to be saved. Because again, this is a part of our history. This is our heritage. This is what was at stake in 1953. God gave us the grace then to defend a proper understanding and to hold on to a proper understanding of the place, the role of faith in our salvation. And may He continue that so that as churches, we are convicted of the truth and defend the truth. God saves by grace through faith. And it's when we understand that, that rather than boasting in ourselves, we will boast in our God. See, there is a proper boasting for the child of God. That proper boasting is boasting in the sovereign God of our salvation. There's no room for boasting of ourselves. And that's the end of verse 9. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's saying the very fact that God saves by grace through faith and works are excluded means there's no reason for pride. If we did save ourselves, if we played a small part, if it was a cooperative effort, then we would boast. And that's the point the Apostle Paul makes in Romans 4 verse 2. For if Abraham were justified by works, 
he hath whereof to glory. That is, if man took part of us, if he, part of the credit went to man, therefore part of the praise would go to man. Man would boast in his abilities. Man would boast in his accomplishments. But because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, therefore all boasting is excluded. And the idea of the language here in 2 verse 9, lest any man should boast. The idea is lest any man should even start to boast. There's no room for it. Now you understand why this is so important to the Apostle Paul, right? Because before he was a Christian, he was a man full of boasting. There was no one so proud as Saul of Tarsus. He tells us that very thing in Philippians chapter 3. He tells us, I boasted of my works. I boasted in my education. I boasted in my nationality. I boasted in my circumcision. I boasted in everything about me. But then God saved me by His grace. And now all of those things I formerly boasted in, I count them all as dung, manure, it's filth, it's vile. And now I boast in God. That's the proper boasting. We say with the Apostle Paul this morning, but God forbid that I should glory or to translate that differently, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Our boasting is in our Savior and the sovereign God of our salvation. That boasting comes to expression in a life of thankful praise. In congregation, do we not have reason to be thankful? If salvation were based on our works, if it was left up to us, we would all be undone. We would be condemned and we would have no hope. Because God saves us by His grace through faith. We can have the assurance that in spite of my sinfulness, in spite of my lack of faith, the weakness of my faith, God will continue His work of grace, which He has begun in my heart and life. And that means I have reason to be thankful. I have reason to praise Him. And so let us do that, remembering that this is not a mere proof text to get our theology right. This is our salvation. And may it ultimately be our doxology that God saves by grace, through faith. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank Thee and praise Thee for the work of grace which Thou hast performed for us and in us. 
And we thank Thee for the clarity that Thy Word provides concerning how we are saved and what makes us Christians. Fill us with a desire to praise Thee and to boast in Thy name, O God. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. Psalter number five.